Thank you so much, Jonathan. Um, I, I want to thank you and, and uh, Rabbi Beth for encouraging me to share the paintings out in the foyer and then talk about them uh, and helping me to share with you another side of my neshama, of my soul. I am ever in your debt. <clears throat> I also want to give a shout out to Judy Leff, Emmanuel's Director of Arts and Culture Programs, for producing the exhibition in the foyer and in the hallway outside the Rinder Chapel. <clears throat> when I was in kindergarten in Detroit, the teacher told us to draw a picture of a house. I drew mine in three dimensions and with perspective. It was better than the teacher's. She sent me to the office. I thought I had done something wrong and cried. That's pretty much how it started. As I grew older, my parents saw to it that I received the full battery of art lessons. Still life, pastel, watercolor, oils, figure drawing, the works. I won a bunch of scholastic art contests and was a regular on a children's afternoon TV talent show. Art was a very big part of my life until I went off to college and rabbinic school. During the ensuing 50 years, I might have picked up a paintbrush maybe a half a dozen times. Then, five years ago, I was having coffee with a filmmaker and we were talking about how he makes a movie. But what if nobody sees the film, I asked. I don't care, he replied. I don't make them for people to see them. I make them because I love to make movies. His answer hit me like a brick in the forehead. Sure, I, I always liked being a congregational rabbi. Often I loved it. But the truth is, I did it for a living. I got to wondering if there was something I wanted to do, not as a hobby or a pastime or even a profession, but seriously, continuously, and with sustained effort for the sheer joy of doing it. Within a few days, I found myself in an art supply store like a zombie, <laughs> spending a lot of money. A 150 milliliter tube of high quality cadmium red medium, for instance, on sale, goes for over 90 bucks a pop. My problem now was that I'd never taken an art class as an adult. Remember, I had learned how to paint before there were tripod easels, before there were latex gloves, before there was odorless turpentine, even before paper towels. <laughs> I felt like an artistic Rip Van Winkle. I set about finding some local painters whose work I admired. Ezra Katz, the San Rafael Todo Santos landscape artist. Sandy Ostro, the figurativist down in Palo Alto. 
and recently Verikat Tong Pai Boon, the Thai urban impressionist. I work exclusively in oils. I try to do at least one 18 by 24 or bigger canvas a week and a 9 by 12 plein air job. I paint in the mornings for about four hours, then I'm totally wasted. And all I can do is read art books and prepare for my teaching. I'm fast. It takes me about four days to complete a canvas. If it goes much longer than that, I get bored. Someone once said that paintings are never finished. They're just abandoned. Since I've begun to paint seriously, I've learned a lot about art and painting. But to tell you the truth, I've learned as much, if not more, about being a human being. I'm astonished by how much you can learn about life from seeing the, way, the world the way an artist tries to see it. I've distilled some of this down into four insights. Frame, color, value, and illusion. Frame. The shape, the proportions, the size of the canvas. This primary decision obviously cannot be changed once the painting has begun. The frame predetermines a painting's composition and unforgivingly predetermines what goes in and what stays out. Will the canvas be broad vista with a long, wide frame? Or something abstract, which usually wants a square? Choosing the correct one is literally an art. One of my teachers used to joke that he'd like to paint on a real big wooden panel. That way, if he decided that he didn't like the shape of the frame, he could just take out his power saw and trim off a side here or there. I own this uh, little artist McGaffer that you hold up to your eye. It makes a box shape with the same proportions as the canvas on your easel. And depending on how close or how far you hold it from your eye, it can include a whole lot or just a little. But the ratio of the length to the width remains constant. It occurs to me that we should use the same sort of thing in our lives. Think of each scene in your life as a painting that psychologically must be cut out of reality. It too has a frame. How many people will it include? How much history? Dreams for the future? Will it include a lot of sky? Perhaps many shadows? Choosing the right frame in your life determines the scene and the feel of the picture. Only God can see everything all at once, but the rest of us, 
every day gets stuck with the shape of the frame and the size of the canvas we have chosen to paint it on. Want to make some changes in your life? Try a different size frame. Two, color. I once had lunch at the Harvard Faculty Club at a table filled with professors from the Department of Applied Mathematics. During the salad, someone asked, what time is it? And before I could even look at my watch, someone from the other end of the table mischiefly asked, where? <laughs> at that table, time was neither fixed nor objective. You might say the same thing about color. If you were to ask me what color something is as a serious painter, I'll ask you in return, when? Fifty years ago, Joseph Albers wrote a seminal book titled The Interaction of Color. In it, he demonstrated that there's no such thing as absolute color. By setting different colors next to one another, We've all seen such demonstrations. We can literally change how they look. Look at the color at high noon, or perhaps at twilight, or in fluorescent light, or next to different colors. The color depends on where it is. Artists make the distinction between local color, the color that seems to reside out there in the object, and the perceived color, the one that actually we experience in our eyes. Everyone knows that a tree is green locally, but artists know often we perceive it as a completely different color. From each vantage point, the color changes. Colors aren't anywhere except in your eyes. Deal with it. In the same way, we are reminded that the way we see other people can also be terrifyingly subjective. The meaning of each deed is relevant and relative only to its context. The one who is doing it sees it one way, but the one who is watching often sees it another. So not only are colors, but acts too are in the eyes of the beholder. Color schmuller. Beware of chromatic and moral certainty. It tricks us into thinking our judgments are objective and accurate when in truth they are neither. They make us feel righteous, but they also get us to do terrible things. We'd be much wiser and kinder instead to pay close attention to how the world appears to others. Three, value. Let's begin with a simple introduction to color theory. Turns out there are three characteristics of any color. The first is easy, hue. 
They name it a color. Is it red? Is it blue? Is it yellow? Two is intensity or saturation. Is the color bright or dull? How much is mixed with and muted by other colors? It's not a pure yellow. There seems to be some red and maybe just a little touch of blue mixed in. The third quality is the trickiest. It's called value. Is the color dark or light? Is it a darker shade or a lighter tint? Take a black and white photo of the scene and ask, where does the color now fall on a gray scale running from black to white? That's its value. Now here's the curveball. Human beings don't seem to be born with the ability to discern value. Seeing value must be learned, rehearsed, and refined over a lifetime. And because people aren't born with it, some artists hold up a little transparent red plastic to strip out the color, leaving only monochrome of darks and lights. It's important, because if you get the values correct, then everything in the painting works, and everything looks right. And here's the thing. You won't believe this, but if you get the values right, you can even change any color you want, and the painting will still look right every time. This gets me to thinking about value in non-artistic terms. What are your values? Everything we experience, not just colors, lives on a value scale. And learning how to read the scale must also be practiced and refined. There are myriad value scales. You'll become an aficionado of many things. Indeed, we all are. It can be wine, investments, music, you name it. It's not good or bad. It's merely what you've chosen to sensitize yourself to. Personally, I would recommend ethics. Where does a deed lie on a value scale of right and wrong? Permit me a pun. If you get your values right, the painting works. And so does your life. Four, illusion. Artists look at ordinary things and see through them to paintings. And if the artist is any good, he helps you see the beauty and the light that has been concealed all along. Think about it. Representational art is itself an illusion. A deception. It's a two-dimensional image that tries to convince you that it's three-dimensional. But here's the thing. Even though it's obviously a visual trick, 
Good art mysteriously managed to tell more truth about its subject than a good photograph. In the words of the famous adage, a good painting is a lie that tells the truth. It penetrates apparent reality to the real truth beneath. The Baal Shem Tov used to tell of a king who was an illusionist. He built around himself a magnificent but illusory castle and then invited his people to come and find him. But when they saw the high walls and the gates, they gave up their search. But then the child of the king came along and she was undeterred by these apparent barriers. She walked right up to the castle and realized it wasn't there. Then she saw that the whole world was only a doorway to her father, the king. Claude Monet continued to paint his water lily pond until his death, eventually creating almost abstract canvases without reference to the banks or the bridge, where the entire subject is the colors of the light on the surface of the water. In the early days of computers, game designers would hide their names somewhere in the program. They were undocumented. Someone had to tell you. Such hidden signatures were called, you should excuse the expression, Easter eggs. Hidden within the program, was the signature of the creator. Duh, it's the same with our world. As the prophet Isaiah saw back in the eighth pre-Christian century, Malo kol ha'aretz kevodo, the fullness of the whole earth is the presence of God. This week's Parashah Vayakhel, we read that Betzalel, Judaism's paradigm artist, completed building the ark. Finishing it off, he made two cherubim with their wings spread out above, shielding the cover of the ark with their wings. Ufnehem ish el achiv. They faced each other, one looking at the other. We look out at our world, or we consider a work of art which invites us to do the same thing, and we are astonished. Someone is peering back, but it's not us. It's literally someone else.